hamster with a blunt penknife would do it quicker. Welcome back to Hamster with a Blunt Penknife, the Doctor Who commentary podcast. I'm here with Joe. Uh, we are shortly going to go into episode two of The Caves of Androzani. We've covered a lot of ground already. And episode two becomes a bit of a deep penetration mission, doesn't it? Of which I would know nothing about. So it's going to be a new virgin material for me. Yes, virgin on the ridiculous, more like. <laughs> Episode one was good though, wasn't it? Wasn't it good? Yeah, that flew by. There's so much going on. It's great. Who who's the least likable character then? Like we've said there's no likable characters. <laughs> who's the least likable? Nastiest. Oh, I think it's got to be Morgus. You can tell that he, you know, he would he would throw anybody in front of a bus or down a lift shaft. Um he's just a bit of a bastard. I've got a theory about Morgus, you know. I reckon he still lives with his mother and she's a right cowbag. And he goes for absolute hell. That's why he goes to work and he's just vile to everybody. Shoves people down, lift shafts, takes over the world. It'd be a great sitcom in that, I imagine. <laughs> and he's really meek and mild and behaves for his mother. And it's the only time he ever behaves. Oh my god, it'll be like sorry, wouldn't it? But set on Androzani. Yeah, and he probably he'll probably still have his aside. He'll turn to camera. It'll be a, a little less like Miranda Hart, but probably, you know, like well, kill her. I can <laughs> kill that woman one day, you'll see. <laughs> yes, <laughs> mother coming. Who played the mother? Oh who could Morgus's mother possibly be. I mean, I'm gonna say who I always say every single time I have to cast something. Miriam Margulies. Miriam <laughs> Margulies. That'd be a good one. Or Stephanie Cole. Oh, Stephanie Cole would be amazing oh. as, as this mad tyrant. Yes. Mrs. Morgus. Yeah. <laughs> you know, someone once dropped on this podcast, you know, um, mm. uh, David Maskell dropped that Stephanie Cole told him that she was in talks for the Sixth Doctor with JNT. I wonder how much I would love that to be true, but that's not one that it's not, it's not one that's done the rounds. But like, yeah. how would she lie to him? You know? Ah, uh-huh. who knows? Who knows? There's quite. I think GNT. Yeah, he wasn't. He wasn't. He could. He could be quite discreet when he needed to be. He didn't and... want to court in controversy, did he? Yeah, absolutely. And he maybe just sort of sounded her out for the role and decided against it, or you know. I think maybe he maybe he'd already met her. Then he went to that wedding, met Colin Baker, and that was it. Oh, Stephanie, forget it. She would have been amazingly good though, as the doctor. Like she's yeah. such a good. You ever seen her in Waiting for God? Yes. So of that woman is brilliant doctor. Um and somebody else that would have been good, Barbara Flynn. Oh, well, we've just seen Barbara Flynn in Doctor, haven't we? Really brilliant in Doctor. Imagine that her as the seventh doctor imagine her not choking down on chris chibnall's exposition oh sorry that sounds disgusting <laughs> oh, oh my goodness <laughs> oh, dear. he's got all that thing and choking this evening yeah. um i don't know where did we start here <laughs> where did we start here? Uh, <laughs> we've gone off on a tangent again <laughs> As ever. oh I was, uh, who's the nastiest person you said it was obviously morgus yeah I think we may have to revisit this by the end of the story, though, you know. Potentially, yes, because they're they're all pretty nasty. But I'm going to tell you one thing, right? 
Robert Glenister in this of uh, what was the episode was in Nicholas Tesla's Night of Terror, wasn't he? Yes. When he was a lot older and a bit plumper mm-hmm. and had matured into a fabulous actor. Oh. And he's so sexy as the evil Salatine, I'm telling you. Oh, yes. Oh, you get that, that look from him. That's one thing you can usually guarantee on in a JNT story. There's going to be at least one good-looking bloke in it. Yeah, that's always the see having a gay producer really helps. <laughs> no, honestly. I wonder when we're gonna have one of those again. Oh yeah. Oh bit tight. He'll have the blame. It's all good. Shall we watch episode two of Case of Andrew's Army? Yes, before we go off on a further tangent. <laughs> <laughs> Indeed. All right, okay. So I will count us in then in five, four three two one do you know it's very telling that the ratings in this story maintained and went up a little bit and that was really rare for latter day davison i think early davison did very well the middle season it was up and down all over the place early the late season was up and down and this was the one story where the ratings yeah i think it's it's a weird it's odd because obviously the thursday friday slot just didn't serve it very well for that last season because you do see quite a dip um but having heard story you know how christopher eccleston said oh yeah everybody would tune in for a regeneration he said that he didn't really follow doctor who but he'd watch regenerations mm-hmm. he's one of that 1.5 million or whatever that tune in for episodes three and four to see how it happens probably <laughs> i'm sure he wasn't disappointed as well yeah that's a good one Oh, here we go. The reenactment of the cliffhanger and the yeah. very, the very clever. I, I, I don't think it's a cheat at all either because we don't know the around. Do we know the around? I don't think we do know the around. No, because I don't think we do. We know that there are that check. Uh, Jack is making duplicates at this point. I don't think it's clear. I mean, that's what he was doing in episode one with all those crossfades, wasn't it? Yeah. Was sending the out, making them up and sending them in. We don't know. We don't so know it advances that. the plot as well. The resolution of the cliffhanger advances the plot. That's great. Oh, yeah. I mean, like Robert Holmes, having had a break from the series, comes back and really nails it, I think. By the time he was finishing up a script editor and contributed to season 16, he was tired. He wasn't too well he needed a bit of a break and some breathing space and then he comes back to Doctor Who and all guns blazing. I think he's determined to prove to JNT this is how good I am. Because JNT didn't want him and Eric says in the documentary he he literally had to fight again and again Uh, for his back. JNT just would not have old writers back no matter how good their track record was. And you know what? After the success of this, obviously John Nathan Turner's like, right, We'll have him back next year. And then I think he wrote The Two Doctors just to be fucking contrary. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> oh bless. I quite like The Two Doctors in a way, but... Oh, my Robert God. Holmes. It's one of my favourites. I love it. But oh. he oh. is being very naughty in that story. Yeah. And I think Robert Holmes, get let him write what he wants to write. Don't impose on him. Because when he was approached to do what would have been The Six Doctors... He just admitted defeat. He couldn't write that story. And then along, he's invited to do The Two Doctors and he does a pretty good job, but it's got to have location shoot. It's got to have Sontarans. It's got to have Two Doctors. It's got to have Jamie. It's a lot to impose on any writer. And you've got somebody like Robert Holmes who didn't like to reuse and 
um, characters or monsters. Um, and then Caves of Androzani, Eric said, right, the only thing you've got to do is kill off the Doctor at the end of this story. And Bob Holmes goes, brilliant. Well, I've not written for Peter before yeah, and I've not yeah. done a regeneration story. Uh, this is it. Brilliant. And he was a bit of a fan himself and he nails it. He really is. He knew what had gone before and he's given you something that hasn't happened previously, but works with the format. Eric Ward says that after the experience of the five doctors, he knew not to kind of hem Robert Holmes in creatively. So oh. he just said, right, you know, and this is a tight script. Like episode oh. four ticks every, like everything that's been set oh. up is satisfyingly like tied up by the end of the yes. story. Now I've watched a lot of Doctor Who and not, a, you can't say that about a lot of Doctor Who, you know, no. it's messy, some of the writing in this show. Yeah, there's there's hardly anything in this that doesn't progress the plot. There's, I think, the some of the the fact that Graham Harper was losing time in the studio benefits the story in a lot of ways because they get rid of that extraneous TARDIS scene that should have been there at the very beginning, and instead you get that voiceover, which immediately is something different and gives you something visually different instead of having a TARDIS scene with people poodling about the console. And I like I like a TARDIS control room scene, but do you not find them a bit much in the 80s there's an awful lot of it but i think this one could just it was extraneous it there's there's no reason why they couldn't just get rid of it but virtually every other scene from that point onwards is beneficial this scene now right between stots and we haven't even touched on stots and crowd both brilliantly performed i think uh oh yeah Oh, I in the Nightmare Man, and he's so different from this. He's so charming in that. Um, and how good is the Nightmare Man? Graham Harper worked on that, so knew him. It's the benefit that he knew a lot of actors, and he could invite them to work on his productions. I was true. I was actually properly scared by a couple of moments in the Nightmare Man. I watched that as an adult. One of the uh -huh. things really frightened me. Oh yeah, I can't watch that third part with the lights off. But that, that's like, isn't that, isn't that Douglas Canfield, Robert Bob Holmes, Holmes. Graham Harper? I mean, come uh, on. <laughs> it's kill, I mean, Graham Harper was so lucky that he was, he worked with Douglas Canfield and befriended him because he learned and gained so much from him. Mm. That he was, that he, he, he obviously, that he wanted to emulate somebody that worked as well as him and learn from him. Um, and nails Doctor Who from the off. He just comes in and he knows how to do it because he's done enough behind the scenes. He says as well, he had a chat, Barry Letts says, I was listening to a commentary oh. the other week where he had a chat with Graham Harper and Graham Harper said, Look, I really want to be a director, but I'm not an arsehole and I don't want to be an arsehole. You know, oh. Barry Letts turns to him and says, like, be yourself, you know, like oh. be be of sound character and that you absolutely can do this and and that's all gave him the thumbs up and 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 graham harper did like by all accounts he's not only a fantastic director but a fucking gorgeous bloke as well you yeah, know people always talk so highly of him it's 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 he's such an asset to the series and a real sort of ambassador for the show and the fact that he was he's been invited back to work on the series when it was when it came back uh, just speaks volumes because I'm. Sh I mean, most of the directors by that point probably weren't in a position to work on the series again. But Graham Harper was and still is directing, and he's well into his seventies now. You think? Oh my God! I mean, look at the stuff he did in the new series. For goodness' sake! 
I mean, I think uh, the, the the momentum and the drama of stuff like Stolen Earth, Waters of Mars, uh -huh. Utopia, the last 10 minutes of Utopia. Uh -huh. Like, I think when he left the series, it was a... It, Moffat's era lost something amazing. He found some uh -huh. fairly good directors, I think. Uh -huh. uh, Rachel Salele, people like that. But Graham Harper's absence is still... Miss I would love for him to come back and do more. Rusty Davis coming back. Just see what oh, he can do. I'm sure. I'm sure he'll ever ask him back, even just for a last hurrah. Because I'm sure somebody... I saw somebody tweet recently saying, oh, he's he's just completed a block of Hollyoaks. So he's still working. And he's 70... Five seventy-six. He can so go to the Revelation of the Daleks BFI, and he sent the most uh, charming like telegram to be uh, read out. And he was like, "I really would have loved to have been there to talk about this and blah blah blah." But yeah, he was working on it. Yeah, so he's definitely uh, working. Lesson. Um. Okay. So we haven't touched on Shara's Jack. Yes. Extraordinary. Oh. Amazing. Just. Like, uh, Crystal. Uh -huh. I, I don't think on any level, like the way, the design of the costume, the character, uh, the performance, the insanely over-the-top dialogue, which I love, as you uh, know. <laughs> I think he's just an extraordinary character. Like, it's, yeah, you feel it, a lot of the characters in this are unsympathetic and there's no real, you know, they're just nasty for no good reason other than that's just them. Whereas Shara's Jack, he's been wronged, he's been mutilated, um, he's motivated purely by revenge. He doesn't. He, he, it's you do you do feel sorry for him to a degree, especially by the end. Just once you know his motivation. And yeah, he's not entirely likable because he's doing terrible things to people. Oh yes, he lets it happen. He's unhinged by his experiences i can imagine he was probably a really nice person and then he's been so brutally betrayed and destroyed do you think you see i always imagine that he was a bit like the president you know vain and i don't know i don't know if this society is brought up anyone uh, particularly pleasant uh, we don't ever go to the like the main uh, system of Andrasani, do we so we don't really uh, know oh no well sorry that's where morgus is isn't it yes uh-huh so you get you get enough of a feel for the society that they're living in from what Bob Holmes does. There's he, he's good at world building and just putting things into the scripts, even just little things like the way they address each other, Crow and Trow, um, instead of Mister and Missus. There's other writers that wouldn't even think to try and make things just a little bit more alien or sci-fi. Details about the Spectrox, uh, the the yeah. information about the mine. That was closed oh. down here and one and a labor camp that was opened up there so there's people yes. that are now unemployed but working for free yeah. uh, without showing us anything you he mm -hmm. paints this picture of this world that's really vivid wow. and he, he's so good at that isn't he oh so really good at it because it's something that other writers that he's maybe did script editing for spoke so highly of like robert bank stewart said um that he didn't really know how to do sci-fi particularly well so when he was invited to do Doctor Who, Doctor Who and he needed to fill a script out he sat with Bob and he just said he sat his typewriter rattled off a page and it all made complete sense within the context of the story and it was sci-fi stuff that he couldn't produce but Bob just knew. Work, work with his strengths. 
Yeah, yeah, yeah absolutely understood the format and the, the, the series well enough to be able to make it work, whatever the circumstance. Stories like the Reboss operation. And I think that's probably the best oh. example of world building that he did, mm-hmm. where he, he literally depicts that entire world vividly and just in about oh. rooms, you know, but yeah. because they're talking about continents and religion and you know just like you know you get a massive idea of the society and And brilliant titles again the graph vindicate is such a brilliant name for character whereas you get other uh, other writers and it's just like a fucking nut job as well isn't he jesus yeah oh gosh yeah oh him and shellac oh oh yeah jesus talk about her going on there (laughs) (laughs) um but like it's something that absolutely um was not a massive strength of this era i don't no. think because you get stories like time lash where it's like you know they, they go like ah oh, amazing leader the borad here is the council and you know oh. what? they're going to attack all 500 of us our war with the bandrels you know and it's so clunking you're like oh yeah. god my yeah, you know? not, there's no subtlety about it it's just that lines there for the sheer benefit <laughs> of furthering the story Whereas Robert Holmes does it subtly enough that you just absorb stuff as it comes along. This is the work of a man who's pissed up every single corner of Doctor Who. Isn't it? <laughs> Let's be honest. Oh, here he is. Oh, no, this is a nice style scene. Uh, it's a, a terrific double turn, though. I think uh, I love the fact that every time he's not looking at someone, he goes all like evil, doesn't he? <laughs> he does the evil. Yes, turn their backs. <laughs> but then he does snap back into being very sort of humane again when the yeah, there's one moment is it the bit when he when he, uh, next episode where he spot he uses infrared and he turns around and he's sussed the situation and chillax got his face to the camera and he, he there's a lot going on there for somebody that's playing an android that's an android that's read the situation yeah it's fantastic Okay, Nicola Bryan. Yes. I, I I don't think there are many better performances from a companion than her performance in this story. And she is playing the victim throughout. Don't get me wrong, and this is kind of like a default setting. And there are a lot of incredibly troubling things going on with her character yes. here, I think. She is treated as uh, an object of desire throughout, mm. which is very she's so good like you could tear her from this and put her in a normal drama and it would still work oh yeah she's just it, she, she gives such a good performance in this and because it was the i think it would have been the very first story that i had seen perry in and it really lived with me that performance so i didn't see a lot of the six doctor stories for years after seeing the repeat of caves and caves of androzani and revelation of the daleks she's good in that as well again she's being lusted after um it's a common theme uh, yeah quite a common theme actually yeah, i mean she's perfect. very useful don't get me wrong but yes. i think she has m- much more to offer yes she's not just an um, object of desire for for characters but um yeah because i think yeah the two doctors was the only story that i had on vhs and in that, she's pretty good as well. She gives a really great performance, and I really like having seen her in Caves and having a good memory of that and seeing the two Doctors, and she's great in that too. She's quite proactive, and she's a bit hesitant to do things, but she sort of finds the courage to go and speak to Chisini in the villa while the Doctor sneaks in the back. And she's 
American students. Ah. <laughs> oh, Cassini, what a character. <laughs> great. But that noble history lies behind me. <laughs> oh, she's living for it. She really goes for it. We're not oh. short of a, a camp over the top villain in the 80s, are we? <laughs> oh, gosh, no. Yeah, we need we need more characters like that in the new series. One thing worries me about this story, and I mentioned this when I talked about this with um, my friend Jack on the my other podcast, and I want to be trying, is that the direction is sometimes complicit in her ill treatment in this. So there's a sequence where um, Sharon Strix had the mask pulled off, uh-huh. and, and he's like, you know, you're going to look at my face now, and then she uh-huh. screams, and she like he goes across the set, and then like. The camera's on him, but she's in the mm. background, and it it waits for one more second for her to let out a like a terrified sob. And oh, I'm like, wowzers, they are really, really exposing her trauma oh. in this. Oh gosh, yeah, she's so weak and fragile. And I don't know what the characterization or the stuff going on in Planet of Fire was about, where where she's having the where she's in the bed. Yeah, and she's crying and she's saying no Howard don't Howard yeah, don't come in my room or something she's going is she there's obviously from the get go either subconsciously or subconsciously please God subconsciously an idea that she was going to be this victim from the off and that she had had a bit of a nasty backstory and that perhaps fed in or drove the characterization and the writing of the character from that point on and I think but, this is the yeah. story that does it like the most explicitly but also the best as well like it's the best written of this template of her being a a victim time lash is the worst where she for no other reason than she's just a useless girl and she isn't i'm not saying that but that's how they treat her they put her in this bloody manacle and had this enormous penis shaped monster attack her her for half an hour (laughs) there's nothing subtle going on here is it no it's uh yes it's quite something (laughs) she's she's poorly served that's that's the misfortune of perry and nicola bryant's time on the show do you mind the fruity dialogue in this like you know congealed in its own evil blood (laughs) yeah if it's really played to the max and they do that here. It really serves the, the the story. There's other stories where maybe that if if some other element let it down, if the performance wasn't so great or the direction wasn't really making the most of it, it would stand out. But Christopher Gable is absolutely selling it. He is a he's using that these oh the the ebb and flow of the character. You know, he's trying to be calm and courteous but underneath he's boiling with rage and it comes out and he you see him snap i i find men like that terrifying men Mm. that are very very charming but there's clearly an anger like restrained beneath the surface and it pops out every now and again i've known men like this uh-huh. I've been in relationship with them, thank God. Oh no, there was one, but we won't go there. Um, it was a very short relationship, um, and he was very short as well. Short man syndrome. Oh, sorry. Anyway, um, oh. uh, so I've, maybe that's why he frightens me a little bit as well. I, I do. I find that sort of unpredictability of character. I like a nice, safe person. You know, <laughs> uh-huh. that there might be that there might be some redeeming quality there, and mm. yeah, you can't, you, 
you're not necessarily getting that reading from any of the characters here that they're going to be good. What about all these, um, you can see it on the special features, all of these caves, <laughs> everything's on wheels, and they're basically ah. rejigging them to look like a, a, you know, a, a network of caves rather than just you know, one boring yeah it's quite it's very neatly done because the, by the end of the season their budget was next to nothing so to be able to do that and to have the lights down so low there are times where occasionally you think oh i've seen that cave wall before but the majority of the time you wouldn't think with the way they reconfigure the sets that that's what they've been doing all along if you hadn't been told you'd be none the wiser and they've done something very clever as well in that they've had a couple of those uh like cave walls Make strong enough so people can climb them so it yeah. adds a sense of going up and down as well because you know, a lot of people sort of climbing up and oh god here we go here's that special effect oh a couple of bags of flour around his neck <laughs> yeah i never noticed that his hearts were on the outside of his jacket till someone pointed it out to me you know yeah it spoiled the magic a little bit when somebody said that to me and i went oh so they are true enough <laughs> <laughs> but like the sequences in um, Time Lash with an android, <laughs> and he just walks very robotically. Uh, towards, oh, yeah. You know, whereas these that that just went boop boop boop. You know, the camera went in very far. Ah, the jump cuts and the way, yeah, I think you've got directors who have very little literal readings and direct directing technique, and they say, right, well, you're a robot, act like one. Or you've got somebody like Graham Harper who's said to them well you're you know he's obviously said to these extras that are playing the androids you're finely honed machines and you're there to kill <clears throat> and they cock their guns and they turn around and they they're quite dynamic and scary you, you know they turn corners and they're there and they're ready with a gun at a moment's notice well there's that one isn't it that murders salatine in episode four he literally just yeah. comes out of nowhere and starts blasting mm -hmm. away Whereas Penn and Roberts would have it walk in and go. <laughs> yeah, very slowly. <laughs> I wish to announce my presence. I am going to kill you now. <laughs> Whereas these ones, you don't, you have no warning. <laughs> no. Okay, so we are now heading towards the cliffhanger episode. This is flying barn, telling you. Oh, yes. Um, featuring the magma beast. Yes. The. the the armadillo with the six pack. <laughs> again, with a six pack. Yeah, it's got a six pack and it's got like veins going on in the thighs. It's been at the gym. I've never noticed. I'm going to watch out for it now. An eye out. It's, it's obviously overdone the bulking powder because it can hardly, it barely toddles. But um, it's beefy. Wow. So, I see. Look, I really love this. They've climbed down. The, the, the set's got moss all over it for a start, so it feels old. They fill the set full of smoke, and then mm. they're climbing down as well. It's just... And there's only spotlights, so there's only so little light creeping through. It's... And the android in the mist. It's just simple techniques. And actually, interestingly, Davison said that when he went back and watched old black and white doctor who he said I, I can't figure out why is it why is that so much more atmospheric and mm -hmm. scary than what we're doing now and it's because they they it was simple techniques of silhouette and good lighting uh -huh. things like this and yeah there's something about a physical effect and an analog sound as well some of those early radiophonic sound effects yeah. can get through they cut through you they get right into your head in a way that 
sort of uh, digital effects and digital sound effects don't achieve that same i watched web planet the other day absolutely oh. the sound effects in that yeah especially that first episode it really sells the atmosphere doesn't it all the chirping and the strangeness and the echo um and it's sim dead simple well Seems my question about the the magma beast this fabulous mm -hmm. creature with the six pack that's about to emerge oh, is, yeah. is it is it necessary it's the one bit of the script they could easily have got rid of. It would have saved them studio time, saved them a few bob. Um, but they kept it regard. Look at its thighs. <laughs> look at its back. Excuse What's me. My, my thighs look a bit like that, all right? Okay. I do a lot of walking. Look I look do it. a lot of walking too, but they're not like that. <laughs> <laughs> he's got his claws up. He's a bit camp and he's got his claws they're up. They're very um, frilly claws. You would, you would spaghetti you to death. You know, by all accounts, um, Graham Harper said that JNT went, oh, my God, look at that thing. When they were up oh. in the gallery, right? He goes, oh, what have they done? Like, look at that monster. Oh. And then Graham Harper was like, and then, and then he had to go down on the floor and direct the bloody thing. Uh-huh. And I just said, I gave him one instruction. Get the mist going. <laughs> Put that up as high as you can. It's well, such a shame that there was always that need to have the monster in a story it's a bit like uh, ghost light as well they're really good the monsters on that first cliffhanger but the right andrew cartmel and um mark platt both said we didn't have them in the first draft they were only put in because gnt said where's the monster i have a monster yeah but then it's like the new series now isn't it they they won't do a historical without a science fiction element yeah it would be interesting to have a pure historical but Whatever happened to trusting your audience, you know? Oh, exactly. Have some faith in them. It's a bit like uh, the, there's arguments that they say you couldn't have a long story that spans weeks and weeks and weeks at a time and have a long continuing arc. And you think, well, that's intriguing because people can follow a soap and you can have a plot that might not even be resolved for two or three years mm -hmm. until somebody gets their comeuppance or they've, you know, they finally um fall pregnant or whatever but they say oh you can't really do that in sci-fi that was something that they you know you'd have eric sayward another writer say we would have done it but it would nobody would have followed it it wouldn't be worth it i think all the best soap villains were allowed to brew for a year or two like um rita's husband in corrie what was it alan yeah. bradley or uh -huh. that, that nutter that had um gail platt and her kids taped up in the car and yes. it went over what's his name richard hilburn oh yes uh-huh tried to kill emily bishop with a with a cushion uh -huh. nobody should be allowed to get away with that this is now the coronation street podcast sorry <laughs> tangent tangent again <laughs> richard hillman the only man more evil than morgus yes oh gosh <laughs> maybe they're related maybe maybe morgus is a descendant well look that was a fabulous episode two do you feel ready yeah. to jump into episode three yeah let's go for it let's do it